So today, I'd like to look at a koan um, from the Blue Cliff Record. And this is case number 40. It goes like this. Rick Coe, who is a high government official, um, he was a disciple of the great Zen teacher, Nansen. And so Rico was visiting and talking with Nansen. Thank you. <clears throat> so Rico, Rico was visiting with Nansen, and he said to Nansen, he said, Master Joe said, heaven and earth and I are of the same root. All things and I are of one substance. Isn't this marvelous? At that point, Nansen pointed to a flower in the garden and called to the official and said, people these days see this flower as though they were in a dream. And that's the end of the koan. Um, so this this um, government official was a student of Zen, and um, he, earlier he, I just want to give you a flavor of another dialogue he had with Nansen. Earlier, at some point, he said to Nansen, "I've raised a goose in a bottle, and gradually it grew too big to get out. Now, without damaging the bottle or injuring the good." How would you get it out? And Nansen called to him and said, Sir! And the, the official, Rikko, respond, responded, Yes. And Nansen said, It's out. At, at that, Rikko had an awakening. So, <clears throat> so Nansen... In this case, he responds to Rico by saying, people these days see this flower as if in a dream. I came across a quote by Annie Dillard from The Writing Life. She said, she's a, for people who don't know, she's an American contemporary author. She said, we still and always want waking we should amass, half-dressed in long lines like tribesmen, and shake gourds at each other to wake up. Instead, we watch television and miss the show. I, the reason this koan came to mind is because I was last week I was reading an article from the Wall Street Journal. Um, caught my attention, and so I'd like to read part of the article to you. It's called How Smartphones Hijack Our Minds. And it's by somebody named Nicholas Carr. It's from October 6th of this year. So I'm just going to get right into it. He's, he goes, he starts by saying, so you bought the new iPhone. If you're like the typical owner, you'll be pulling your phone out and using it some 80 times a day, according to data that Apple collects. 
That means you'll be consulting the glossy little rectangle nearly 30,000 times over the coming year. Your new phone, like your old one, will become your constant companion and trusty factodum. Your teacher, secretary, confessor, guru, the two of you will be inseparable. Anybody relate to that? Um, The smartphone is unique in the annals of personal technology. The smartphone has become a repository of the self, recording and dispensing the words, sounds, and images that define what we think, what we experience, and who we are. So what happens to our minds when we allow a single tool such dominion and over our perception and cognition? Scientists have begun exploring that question, and what they're discovering is both fascinating and troubling. Not only do our phones shape our thoughts in deep and complicated ways, but the effects persist even when we're not using the devices. A 2015 Journal of Experimental Psychology study found that when people's phone goes off in the middle of a task, their focus wavers and their works get sloppier, whether they check the phone or not. Another 2015 study showed that when people hear their phones ring but are unable to answer it, their blood pressure spikes, their pulse quickens, and their problem-solving skills decline. That's not surprising. I I remember when I read that sentence, um, a talk by Thich Nhat Hanh, or maybe it wasn't a talk, but something uh, that Thich Nhat Hanh said about answering the phone. He said, when it rings just to breathe in and breathe out before answering it. It's quite difficult, isn't it, to stop that impulse? So the, the study goes on. One study showed how much influence our phones had regardless of whether they were being used. The researchers recruited students at the UCSD and gave them two standard tests of intelligence. The only variable in the experiment was the location of the subject's smartphone. Some of the students were asked to place their phones in front of them on the desk, while others were told to stow their phones in their pocket or their handbags, and still others were required to leave their phones in a different room. The results were striking. In both tests, the subjects whose phones were in view posted the worst scores, while those who left their phones in a different room did the best. As the phone's proximity increased, brain power decreased. In subsequent interviews, nearly all the participants said that their phones hadn't been a distraction, that they hadn't even thought about the devices during the experiment. They remained oblivious, even as the phones disrupted their focusing and thinking. Smartphones have become so entangled with our existence that even when we're not peering or pawing at them, they tug at our attention, the author continues, diverting precious cognitive resources. The fact that most of us now habitually keep our phones nearby and in sight, researchers have noted, only magnifies the mental toll. It isn't just our reasoning that hits, takes a hit when our phones are around Social skills and relationships seem to suffer as well. 
It's because smartphones serve as a constant reminder of all the, f- the friends we could be chatting with electronically. They pull at our minds when we're not talking, when we're talking with people in person, leaving our conversations shallower and less satisfying. Uh, reading that, I remember uh, a few years ago, I walked into a diner and was meeting some people, and we uh, were sitting down, and I looked across, and there was a booth, and there were there was a, a young lady, um, and in walks her friend, and sits down, they greet each other, say hello, and sit down, and, and start talking, uh, and then within, I don't know, 30 seconds, both of them whip out their phone, and start um, just engaging their phone, and for at least 10 minutes, they did not say a word to each other. They just sat there on their phones, which is quite interesting. Um, the article goes on, in a study conducted at the University of Essex, pairs of people were asked to converse in private for 10 minutes. Half talked with the phone in the room, half talked to the other person with a phone in the room, while half had no phone present. The subjects were then given tests of affinity, trust, and empathy. The mere presence of mobile phones inhibited the development of interpersonal closeness and trust and diminished the extent to which individuals felt empathy and understanding from their partners. The evidence that our phones can get inside our heads so forcefully is unsettling. It suggests that our thoughts and feelings, far from being sequestered in our skulls, can be skewed by external forces we're not even aware of. Just a few more sentences from this article. Whether our phones are turned on or switched off, they promise an unending supply of information and experiences. In the history of captivating media, the smartphone stands out. Now that phones have made it so easy to gather information online, our brains are likely offloading even more of the work of remembering to technology. If the only thing at stake were memories or trivial facts, that might not matter. But this story has a twist. It turns out that we aren't very good at distinguishing the knowledge we keep in our heads from the information we find on our phones or computers. Researchers explained in a 2013 Scientific American article that when people call up information through their devices, they often end up suffering from delusions of intelligence. I love that. Delusions of intelligence. They feel as though their own mental capacities had generated this information, not their devices. The advent of the information age seems to have created a generation of people who feel they know more than they than ever before. The scholars concluded, even though they may know ever less about the world around them. Delusions of intelligence. So, um, this, this article stood out to me as very Buddhist in a sense. Um, a large part of Buddhist practice is waking up to our conditioning. That's part of what we're doing while we're sitting, is noticing our mind, noticing how and when 
were taken off into the stream of thought or distraction. And so um, noticing even sometimes our unconscious patterns, like the students who didn't even know that they were being influenced by their phones. Remember what Dogen, Zen Master Dogen said. He said that to study Zen is to study the self. To study Zen is to study the self. And he, of course, goes on, to study the self is to forget the self. But it's really difficult to see ourselves clearly. To see those of, you know, when we have those delusions of intelligence making Google knowledge our own. It's really hard to see when we're doing that. And perhaps there's other ways that we fool ourselves. So that koan, if we could go back to that, just to remind us, Rico, the government official, said, he was quoting somebody else, he was quoting Master Joe, said, heaven and earth and I are of the same root. All things and I are of one substance. Isn't that marvelous? Nansen pointed to a flower in the garden and said, people see this flower as if in a dream. It's easy to mistake a dream for what's real. We all have had dreams that seem real, even perhaps hours after waking up. We can even sometimes question, did somebody really say that or was I dreaming? <clears throat> I remember this happening in Sashin, the retreats once in a while, where I would wake up um, not even knowing if it was 5 a.m. or 5 p.m. because it was dark, you know, not sure what's real not knowing if it was a dream or not. Part of what we're up against in this lightning pace of technology um, as it advances is that we're kind of being subject to this increasing membrane of mediation, this mediated experience. Anytime we have a question, we reach for our phones. Anytime we have see something beautiful, we might take out our phones and take a picture of it. You think you see these pictures, uh, maybe even some of you have done this, well, I certainly have, where you've been at a concert and you're watching the concert through the video of your phone. You know, you see these crowds, just hundreds and hundreds of people with their phones up and, and there's the show and they're like this, right? We make, uh, we, we, we wake up, you know, with an alarm on our phone. We check the news. We check Facebook. We have breakfast with our favorite podcast. We jump into the car. We turn on the radio. We get to work. We log into our computers. Um, we come home. We get on Facebook again. We go to bed with a app that generates theta waves or something, you know, right? So it's this constant and ever-increasing mediated membrane that we're experiencing our life through. Now, the question is, is there anything inherently wrong with this? 
I would say probably not. No. But just some cautions. If we're not careful, we might find that we're living more and more through this mediation, through this lair, and less and less directly. Perhaps it is maybe increasingly difficult to tell our own thoughts from Google's thoughts. What we find, I think, sometimes is that we, when we don't know something, we tend to go to the internet on an impulse. And it's no wonder that people don't really know what they think anymore. When you ask somebody about, what do you think about an issue? They'll say, well, what I read is dot, dot, dot. It's very difficult, I think, increasingly difficult for people to have their own original thoughts because we're constantly checking what did so-and-so say about it? What's their commentary? So we begin to trust, trust ourselves less and less and trust the internet more and more. And this is part of what Nansen is pointing out to Riku. Because when he says, heaven and earth I are of the same root, Heaven and earth and I are of the same root. He's quoting somebody else. He's quoting Master Joe. Those, not, those aren't his words. They're the words of someone else. My, my teacher used to say that when you're watching a documentary, say, on elephants, <clears throat> you believe that you've seen elephants. But you haven't. You haven't seen elephants. You've seen dots on a screen. Right? They're not real. It's an illusion or a dream. It's a dream of elephants. And in Zen, we emphasize direct experience. And this is why we don't emphasize a whole lot about reading or sutra study in Zen. Because it's not your experience. Sure, reading can be helpful as much as it helps us close the book, as Roshi Kaplow said, and go sit. So if it's inspiring us, then of course reading is important. But if it's just to fill our minds with the words of other people, then it is kind of a dead end. At least that's how we see it from a Zen perspective. what, What I believe is that part of the reason that we are subjecting ourselves more and more to this mediated world is because it feels good. It feels good to check out, right? To zone out. I mean, I admit it, like to binge out on a Netflix series or something, you know, it feels, because you're disembodied in a sense, like you're not there. You're checking out from the pain, physical pain or mental pain or spiritual pain of your life. You're really checking out. So you're disembodied. You're setting aside um, your own existence through the existence of this online world. It's like a pleasant dream. 
you know, um, it's like when you're having a dream and suddenly your feet lift up off the ground and you can fly. You're leaving this body, this pull of gravity for the ability to fly. So that force of gravity that's all too real in our dreams can be completely transcended in a sense. And so I think this is part of why people go to this online world. But I wonder also if this kind of filtering of our experience um, is doing things to us other than what the uh, article mentioned. Things that um, we as Zen practitioners can be aware of. <clears throat> if we remind ourselves the point of Zen is to touch into reality. To spend less and less time lost in our thinking and more time attended to our, um, the circumstances of our life. Right? The journey, you could say, is always from a dream state to reality in Zen. From a dream state to reality. Which is hard enough <laughs> without this increasing membrane. It's hard enough to live directly, not through our thoughts and intellect, but to live simply and directly. But then we add this other layer. For many of us, the first time we really experience a real sense of unmediated un and direct experience is in retreat. In, we have these retreats in Zen where we sit for very long periods of time. And <clears throat> I, I, I feel that, you know, people that have been to retreat know what it's like to, after a few days of sitting, to suddenly look down at the floor and see the grain of the wood or a a knot in the wood and just the absolute beauty that pops forward or maybe walking or sitting outside and seeing two blades of grass and the texture and the and and, and it's just a complete this complete world that comes through This, this happens in Sashin, this re, these retreats where our senses open up, our smells, be, the smells become more um, full, our sights taking in more and more, uh, our tastes. People always, after retreat, they always say, could I get that recipe, right? Could I get that recipe? It was so good, right? It's not the, it wasn't the recipe, that made it so good. It was the sitting. That's the part of the recipe that people miss at home. But that sitting or that experience takes sometimes days to tap into. And what is becoming apparent is with this mediated membrane of more and more time in front of screens, like as I'm reading here, um, 
that it's taking longer and longer for people to experience unmediated experience. It's really taking longer when people come to retreat to disconnect from the habit force of uh, being tethered to this technology. Um, I really had a taste of this, how prevalent it had become. I was working years and years ago, probably 20 years ago, I was working as a graphic designer for a small graphic design firm. And I was spending about eight hours a day on the computer. I was doing layout, text layout and illustration layout. And um, we were using these Mac computers with programs like Cork Express and I don't remember the other program names, but Illustrator was one, Photoshop, of course. I And I came home one evening and I um, was doing dishes. I was living still with my parents and I was doing dishes and a dish slipped out of my hand and hit the sink and cracked. And as it happened, my mind instantaneously said, edit, undo. Hit the edit button, undo button. <laughs> and at that point, I went, what the heck? <laughs> I can't do this, you know. If only life was so easy. But I wonder, just from that experience, how much conditioning this technology is having on us. So the more time we spend in this membrane, the longer it takes to readjust and touch into the directness of life. It's hard enough to stay present and aware um, and touch this ground of being that the Zen masters have implored us to do. The Zen masters have always encouraged us to wake up from the dream of a separate ego, a separate I, a separate me. But these powerful technologies are creating um, what you could say is another layer that now we have to wake up from two dreams, don't we? It's like we're dreaming within a dream. I mean, I don't know how many people have had that experience of dreaming only to wake up and they're still in a dream. And so I wonder if we're now creating another layer that we have to wake up from. Part of my concern is not only that we're becoming less in touch with the direct world, but that these technologies have such a hypnotic power to them that I wonder if they're creating a kind of apathy in people. You know, a, a, a kind of mind state where people begin to care less and less 
a less and less about waking up from this dream state that Nansen is pointing to in the koan. I wonder if people are going to care less and less about experiencing the real world. How many people have you? Has everyone seen The Matrix, the movie? Everyone know the movie, The Matrix? Yeah, great movie. Yeah. When, when he's offered, when um, he's offered to take the blue pill or the red pill, remember? And he chooses. I think it's the red pill. Right to wake up. I wonder if we were offered, or in the future, if people are offered the white, red pill, or blue pill, if they wouldn't just choose the blue pill to stay cocooned in, to stay asleep, to stay a part of the matrix. But okay. Even with all these concerns about technology, about how it might be rotting our brains or diminishing our ability to think, right, or um, connect with others, as the article said, I wonder. And you know, I think there is some validity in this. I don't want to sound like a grumpy old guy or something in these concerns. Um, So even though I think there may be some validity in it, I think there's something actually deeper in this koan to look at, really, before we end. There's something more that nonsense is pointing to. I wonder if you can see it. He says, you see this world as if in a dream. In Zen, in Zen training, we have to be on the lookout. Are we attaching to our ideas, our mind states? Perhaps Nansen, when he calls Rico over and, and says this about the flower, I wonder if he's saying to Rico, he's kind of giving him a nudge, saying, don't settle, don't get trapped by experiences of oneness. Don't get trapped even by enlightenment. It's very common when people have a first opening experience for them to make it into something that it's not, to become attached to enlightenment. Oh, now I'm enlightened. So I wonder if Nansen is encouraging Rico to let go of even that. The only thing that counts is right now, right here. Not some guy's experience, Master Joe he was quoting, or even his experience. Let's say he did have an awakening experience. To even let that go. How do you experience this waking life now? Is what he's saying. How do you experience this flower do you see it as if in a dream? Now, we have to remember that even dreams have their own existence, their own truth. The, the moon of truth, as we say in Zen, the moon of truth is always present, even when we're sleeping. It's there. 
It always shines. It's always there. Even when it's behind a cloud, it's still there. When we don't see it, it's still there. It's there right now. We just don't see it. We have this idea that the moon only shows up at certain times, but it's always present. So we have to hold this business of waking and dreaming, this is it and this is not it, very lightly, lest we think that waking is more important than dreaming. So in practice, we have to be careful about cultivating and attaching to mind states and being careful that we uh, create, don't create conditions in our life that make it difficult to practice, like spending too much time online. But at the same time, we have to um, appreciate that there's nothing outside of true nature, even being on the internet, even being on our cell phone or our, you know, typing away. The question really is a matter of attentive awareness. Do you understand what you're doing? Are you aware of how you're spending your time? And the flower that's in front of us now, you know, the person at the grocery store that we're interacting with, they're a flower. How do we experience them? How do we experience the flower of a difficult conversation at work or the flower of an argument with our partner or the flower of... Um, traffic jams, you know, that nothing, or the, I don't know, fly buzzing around or something, but nothing is outside of this truth. So how do you experience that? And so just to bring it back to that question, or in that statement of nonsense, most people experience this flower as if in a dream. And so the question is, how do you experience it? 